Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. time and worship between Advent and Christmas and the celebration of Lent and Easter as kind of a liturgical breather. We're taking a rest from all of the preparation of Advent and all the preparation of Lent and some of that deep introspection that comes as a part of Lent. And we're having this opportunity to explore some of the texts that one, don't come up in lectionary, so not a lot of people preach on them. And two, are kind of strange and weird stories of the Bible. And this one is definitely weird. And you might be thinking, I haven't heard that one before. And that would be because this is definitely something that preachers don't want to preach on. A sermon that's deadly. That is not something that we want to talk about. And so it doesn't come up in the lectionary. And it's not something that many of us yearn to teach. In fact, it's something that... Uh, is a little embarrassing as a, a clergy person whose job it is to preach. This is certainly what's not to do. And let's talk about how this story comes about. So it just so happens that the Apostle Paul is visiting in this place. And while he's there, he is meeting on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday. And there they're engaging in the earliest form of Christian worship. So remember that at the beginning of Christianity, it was actually a subset of Judaism that the original Christians, those apostles, were Jews. And so there was a time period where they were both Jewish and Christian. And because the Jewish Sabbath is sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, they could be good Jews and observe the covenant there. And on Sunday, the Lord's Day, the day that Jesus rose from the dead on Easter, they celebrated Christ. And the way that they celebrated Christ was not the same way that they celebrated the Sabbath in Judaism. They were gathering together for a common meal. And while that meal may or may not include singing some hymns together or some psalms, uh, it may or may not include the opportunity to converse and have an educational experience like they did in the synagogues on the Sabbath. But one of the things that they did always do was partake in Holy Communion together. It was part of the meal that they shared. And whoever was able would open their home to the Christians in their town, and they would have this really beautiful catered meal, usually by the host, or sometimes I guess it could be kind of a biblical potluck. And they would engage in some conversation. They could share prayer requests and prayer needs. And then they would get to remember and, and practice the theology that is conveyed in the sacrament of Holy Communion. And so that's what the things they did. So Paul is there on Sunday, and Paul is holding a discussion with this group of Christians in this area. And Paul feels like he's got to, a lot to say, not because Paul is full of hubris and thinks everything he says is important, but Paul thinks that he's going to be leaving. And so anything he's got to say, he's kind of got to get out, which is why in the scriptures, the later letters of the apostle Paul are actually his longest letters. As he gets closer and closer to his martyrdom and death, he starts to have more to say because he's got to get it all out right now. There won't be another opportunity. And so I think he felt a little bit of that when he 
was in this town where Eutychus lived. And so he's there and they are having dinner and which would usually be about right after sunset because you would work as long as there were daylight hours. So if you were an agrarian or farmer or you were a shepherd or a herdsman, then you do all of that during the day and then you put all of your stuff away and then at dark you go in and eat because you can light a lamp inside. They didn't have the ability to work outside that we have now. And so it's right after dark, right after sunset. And our scripture opens by saying that he spoke until midnight. So we're talking at least five, six, seven hours he's been talking. And at midnight, the room has been filled with many lamps, according to the text. And they are in an upstairs room. So this is not typical of the housing that you would find in Jerusalem, but in the outskirts of the Roman Empire where Paul was traveling and part of his ministry, you would have tenement buildings that had more than one floor. You know, normally you would have one floor and maybe a roof or maybe another floor and maybe a second, but that wasn't really part of the, uh, the architecture at that time in Jerusalem. So here we're in the, on the third story and it's hot because these lamps have been burning for hours and hours and hours and all these people have gathered to hear the apostle Paul and Eutychus being a pretty smart young man has found a window seat so there's probably a little bit of the evening breeze blowing through there uh, to cool him off and while he's sitting there he starts to fall asleep and as the text says while Paul talked still longer because he won't stop talking and still longer Poor Eutychus falls asleep and, as some of us have been known to do, falls over. But unfortunately, because he's in a window, he falls three stories to his death. The text says that, that he was picked up dead. And we have to believe the narration of the Bible. So he falls down and dies from his fall. And then the people, of course, are upset. They rush down. Paul goes down. Paul bends over and goes, oh, don't be alarmed. His life is still in him, which, time out. That means that Eutychus was resurrected, which is a big deal. That's a huge deal. That doesn't happen all the time. That is not something that most people get to experience, much less be present for or know the person who was resurrected. We're talking about something the level of the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament with the widow of Zarephath's son. We're talking about the, the level of Jesus resurrecting Lazarus. We're talking about an incredible experience here. And Paul's like, oh, he's fine. He's still alive. Let's go. Let's go back up. And that's exactly what they do. Paul goes back upstairs. He has his food now. He breaks bread and eats. And then he continues to talk until dawn. <laughs> Paul's been talking like 12 hours. And then he goes. But the most important verse is number 12. Meanwhile, they had taken the boy away alive and were not a little comforted. So this is a huge negative lesson. This is a story about what not to do. I do not advise anyone to preach like that. That is not how we're supposed to do a sermon. Sermons shouldn't kill you. Sermons shouldn't cause you to fall out a window, dead, asleep, boredom, who knows. And I'm sure if you've heard more than one sermon, you've had times where you're like, well, they just please stop talking for a multitude of reasons. But sometimes sermons go too long. And one of the, the clergy persons that taught me as, uh, on my journey said, you know what? Sometimes if you're circling and circling, land the plane. Just land the plane and move on. Uh, sometimes you just need to stop. But Paul here has, has made a crucial mistake that people who are preaching, whether you're clergy or lay persons, sometimes forget. And that it's not about what you are trying to accomplish in a sermon. It's not about the preacher. 
It's about the message. And the message has clearly defined rules, regulations, and purpose in Scripture. Jesus preached. Jesus expects his people to preach. And because of that, Jesus modeled for us what good sermons look like. And that is that not only are they opening up the word of God for God's people to educate and encourage, to edify, and in some cases to challenge us to take the next steps in our faith, but they are also contextually relevant to the people that are there. Jesus didn't go around saying the exact same thing to everybody. He was paying attention to who they were, what their context and circumstances were, what he thought they needed, and then he engaged with them on that level. He wasn't like, oh, this worked over in Capernaum, so it's certainly going to work over here in Jerusalem. That's not how Jesus worked. And any of the gospel accounts. In fact, we find, especially in the Sermon of the Mount, that Jesus is very much impacted by the questions that people are asking and the engagement that he's having right then and there. So that even when his apostles start asking qualifying questions, Jesus is able to follow the movement that is exposed by their questions and their needs and their changing circumstances. Some things people were like, yes, absolutely, I get that. And then sometimes they were like, whoa, time out. I don't really understand what you're talking about. Can you say more about that? And so Jesus did that. He stayed where they were. He went where they needed to go. So that's always the mark of a great sermon is that the preacher is engaging with God who knows our circumstances and knows where God wants us to go and is trying to help us. So even when, for instance, here at Crozet, we worship plan out, hopefully six months in advance, and all that time that I'm working on the sermon and our worship team and our volunteers are working on the worship that are all united together in theme and in purpose, what ends up happening is that sometimes you can get ready and then before Sunday morning, something happens and you can't get up and pretend that there wasn't some tragic circumstance, some very apparent rise in sin or the prevalence of evil manifesting itself. We can't pretend that something didn't happen. And so we have to be willing to follow the movement of the Spirit, and address it. But here, Paul is kind of dialed into, I've got to get this set, I've got to do this, I've got to fill this. I mean, I have never, I've been to three different colleges, and no one has ever lectured me for 12 hours straight. I wouldn't have stayed there. And yet, he had a captive audience, and he did it. And what happened? Somebody died. Eutychus died from Paul. And Paul doesn't even seem to get it. He's not really connected. Can you imagine if you have something horrible happen and you just move on like somebody didn't just have a heart attack out in the pews? Now, we should probably use this more in seminaries to talk about, one, what not to do, and two, that this is the reality of life. I have been in many of worship services. I have been leading many worship services where something happens out here in the pews, and we can't just like pretend like that somebody hasn't just fallen out because they've had a medical issue. Instead, we have to address that, and depending on what happened, we might need to center ourselves in prayer. We might need to address what happened and our fears and anxieties over seeing one of our siblings in Christ suffer. And that's happened. I mean, especially if we're talking about funerals in the summer and people are locking their legs and getting all hot and they're emotional and it's very upsetting and people will pass out, people will black out, people will faint. 
You've had, I've had all kinds of medical emergencies happen in worship, and you don't just pretend like it's not happening. Like, everybody just disregard the guy over there and the guy coming in with the ambulance and the stretcher. That's not how life works. We are invested in one another, and we are impacted by what happens. But Paul seems to be tragically removed from what's happening. I mean, this young man, who the text goes on to say a boy, he's probably a teenager or at most a young adult, and his family, his friends, his fellow Christians in this church have just watched him die and resurrect. And rather than going, you know what, I think we need to pay attention to this. I think we need to talk about the power and the manifestation of God's goodness right here for Eutychus. I mean, this is a perfect example. We could even talk about Lazarus and Jesus or the fact that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Instead, Paul talked about 12 hours. And you know what the text doesn't say? What he talked about. I mean, that's, they more, remember more the abysmal failure of Paul in his preaching style and how people were traumatized by this experience that poor Eutychus fell out and died. We have more commentary about the lighting in the room than we do about what Paul said. Because sometimes how you show compassion preaches volumes more than what your words are. And Paul didn't show much compassion here. This was a failure for Paul. Now, Paul is not an abysmal failure. In fact, Paul is probably one of the most successful apostles out of all of the apostles in the New Testament. Paul has been able to do so many wonderful things. But perhaps one of the less unsung lessons of Scripture is that the people in the Bible are not perfect. Even the ones that we yearn to have be our heroes. The ones that we want to be successful because it gives us hope that maybe we can be successful too. But they're all humans. They all have mistakes that they make. Some of them fail abysmally here, as Paul does. But they're all struggling to do what God wants them to do. Now, could you imagine if Paul had the reaction that a lot of us have when we fail? Like, I'm just never doing this again. I stepped out of my comfort zone. It went very bad. And we're just, you know, I'm never going back to that town. And I'm never going to preach again. Could you imagine what life would have been like? But because of the ministry of Paul, not only did Christendom truly spread, I mean, it spread physically, geographically, it spread in the hearts and minds of people. People were for once really exposed, impacted, and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ because of Paul. He helped not only found churches, but he helped people become a religious community built upon the grace, love, and principles of Jesus Christ. And if Paul had let one failure knock him off of his trajectory, Christendom would not be what it is. We would be much more Judaic than we are liberated Gentile Christians today. And we have to recognize that, that sometimes it's how we say things and what we choose to do in a circumstance, whether we allow the Spirit to lead us. Remember, I talked about how sometimes you'll have everything planned and you'll have all these wonderful things. Last Sunday, I had this sermon planned and I was so excited to preach on this text, ironically. And unfortunately, we had a big snowstorm. And while I probably could have gotten here, I think I would have been one of the only people because some of our key volunteers and staff were coming from areas that were completely inundated and local authorities told them not to even get on the road. And so I had to make a decision. Was I going to try to preach my sermon from my great room in my house, which is not a good idea, or I could try to do something different and know that when the time is right, this sermon will come. And that takes 
struggle because I was ready and I was excited to do this sermon. But the circumstances, the context changed. And so sometimes we think we know what we're going to say and do. We're ready, we're prepared, maybe we even prayed and read our scripture and we're all geared up, and then something happens. Have you ever gone to visit someone or tried to have a conversation with someone, maybe on the phone or via text message or email, and you really wanted to say something to them, but then you discovered that they were really struggling with something or they're just in a really bad place or it just didn't seem like the time, and that choice comes. You can try to override all of the signals that you're getting and you can force through what you want to say, like the Apostle Paul, or you can listen to their heart and their spirit and maybe even the movement of the Holy Spirit and respond as one who loves the other, as someone who is trying to model the compassion that Christ showed all of Christ's people. It's incredible to see when someone chooses the other over themselves, when someone decides to let the voice that is heard be that of God and not what we wanted to say or what we wanted to show. There are many times in our walk as disciples of Jesus Christ when God will offer us the opportunity to follow God's lead, to go in a direction that we didn't, perhaps we didn't even really want to do because we thought we knew where we were going. We were really sure. We felt confident that this is where Christ wanted us to go. And this is what Jesus would have us say. And this is how we're going to be a disciple today. And then all of a sudden, something shifts. Something changes. But what my experience has been, and I think what the scriptures show us too, is that it's sometimes those unexpected encounters that have the most impact, that really do change things for people. There are so many times when I was able to gather in here for chapel for the preschool that I had something in mind. I, ha I had what I wanted to say and do and show the kids and engage with them. And then you bring the kids in here and sometimes there's a lot going on in the chancel and we are way off in left field. And I could be like, all right, no talking about this because Pastor Sarah has things she wants to say. But what I've experienced is that sometimes when the kids want to know about what the symbols on the pyramids mean or what is going on back here when we've transformed everything for Lent, that they're actually opening a door into their heart and their minds and saying, tell me about Jesus. Tell me about the church. Tell me what we're doing here. And those conversations are sometimes our most fruitful. So we have to learn to follow the nudging of the Holy Spirit. We have to be willing to see where is the other person right now and where do they need us to be? Do they need us out in front leading them? Do they need us very much present here with them where they are right now because they're so engaged with right now in this place or maybe they're too sick or too tired, too heartbroken, too depressed to go there right now. That doesn't mean that we don't go there later but it means that we recognize that the Holy Spirit is calling us here. And there are countless stories in the scriptures of people that were going about their lives with great purpose when suddenly the Holy Spirit calls them to something different and nothing exposes that divine truth more than the story that Jesus preached and told about the Good Samaritan, about a Samaritan going about his business when suddenly, in the midst of his journey, he sees a man who has been robbed, beaten, and left for dead on the side of the road. 
And while the priest and the Levite, two of the holiest people in that time and culture, chose to stay focused on what they were doing, the Samaritan in the story stops, shows radical mercy, compassion, and kindness, and embodies the exact fulfillment of all the covenant that Jesus is calling us to do. And it is that person, the one that chooses to respond to the person in need in the context of that moment. It is that person that Jesus and countless preachers have upheld for us to see, to hear, and to model in our lives. So how many times have we had the opportunity, not just in our homes, in our relationships, in our schools, or in our jobs, or out in the world, we had the opportunity when we felt that little nudge of the Holy Spirit, but instead we stayed so focused on who I am and what I have to do and I got to get this done today, rather than taking the moment to respond as God did. And for most of us, it is those moments, those pinnacle moments that shaped us that made us into someone different. There have been so many incredible teachers and professors I have had along my time from being in public schools here in Virginia to three different collegiate experiences, but by far those moments that truly changed how I understood myself or my purpose or that really made an impression on me educationally those things were marked by people who chose not to pursue their agenda or even their own syllabus, but who chose to take those moments and follow my interest or help me see what I needed to see and hear in that moment rather than doing what they thought was important. And that's where Paul failed. He had his agenda and I'm sure he thought it was for the good of those people. I'm sure he thought it was for the glory of Christ because Paul was that kind of zealous, all-in kind of guy. He was a Pharisee when he was Jewish, and then he was a paragon of apostlehood when he became an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he was all-in 100%, and he came at everything with that level of zeal. But sometimes we can be so zealous for doing things that we forget why we do things at all. We do things to show love for others because God has done everything to show love for us. And so when Paul left that place, those people didn't feel educated and edified or encouraged. Those people didn't feel like the presence of God had been manifest here. Those people felt like they had been traumatized. They felt that something horrible had happened. And they didn't feel comfort. And that's when we as disciples fail, when we don't convey the comfort, the hope, and the love of Jesus Christ. When we don't show people compassion for what they're going through. When we refuse to stop our agenda and pay attention to what they need here and now. And that's perhaps the most disturbing trend in Christianity is that sometimes we model more of Paul's failure in this instance than we do in his successes. Where in the midst of his life, he stopped and he told people about Jesus. He gave them his testimony. He invited them to experience the glory of God. And when he did that, he founded churches. He gave people hope and faith in our Lord and Savior. But here, all he left was a lot of brokenness misery, 
and a lost opportunity. May we grasp more onto those opportunities to be like the successful Apostle Paul by learning to be attentive with our eyes, our ears, and our spirit to these instances so that perhaps the experience of Eutychus will truly be the last. May it be so. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. throughout Advent, we have been journeying through this small passage. It's only a few verses, only a few sentences. And yet each week we've gone in depth and looked at it and kind of broken it apart and followed it piece by piece. And today we have the conclusion of it. And it talks about something to which we bring a lot of our own experience and our culture when we read it, so when we are reading those things into a text, when we bring them to our reading and our understanding, that's called eisegesis. That's reading into the text. But as maturing disciples, we are called to exegesis. We are called to read out of the text, which means we have to go back and consider the culture and the circumstances under which the text was created. To whom was Jesus talking and how would they have understood those words? Well, consistently through the first weeks of Advent, we saw that a lot of these meanings are completely different in our current cultural context than they were in Jesus' day. Nowadays, the military doesn't compel us to carry things or follow directions for a mile. Nowadays, we don't have generally people walking up and smacking us across the cheek, and if we do, that's assault and handled very differently. There are a lot of switches that have happened, and for the most part, we have been benefited and been enriched by those changes as we have grown and understanding even outside the church has grown. But today is a particularly difficult one. Today is one that many Christians, some of which even within my extended family, have wrestled with. Because a lot of times, maybe you are like me, when you first read this, the image that comes to mind is panhandling. I can remember the first time I ever saw anyone panhandle. I was six. My family had temporarily moved to Syracuse, New York, so my father could complete a master's in business administration from Syracuse University as part of his working for the Department of Defense. And we took a trip to New York City. If you're that close, why not? And we took a trip, and the subway was in an entirely different state than it currently is. So after I was traumatized by riding the subway, when we got into the when we got into the city, I had never seen people sitting in squalor and asking for money before. I had never experienced that. And I do remember very clearly the sights and the sounds of New York City my first time, both from the subway and from the panhandling. And I remember thinking, why are so many people so hungry and poor here? Why is that? And it was a completely mind-blowing and disconcerting experience for a child. 
And since then, I have seen a lot of people panhandling. In fact, you can drive into Charlottesville here nearby and you can experience it regularly. They're in the medians and sometimes they come up to the cars. If you go into major cities, you can see it. And I had always been raised, not both by my parents and my extended family, that I'm meant to have a job and be self-sufficient. And so that is something that I have strived very hard to do in my life. And even as you strive for that, sometimes life happens. And this pandemic has really put that into a new frame of reference for me. I have had an incredible transition as I understand the struggles of people now. Because not only has the church always been a place where people have been able to turn in their time of need, whether they are looking for food from a food mission like our Grace Grocery, or I have been a part of churches that had a, progr a program for clothing people, or a program for helping people learn English. I've been a part of many different churches that have had many different ministries. And even here at our church in Crozet, we have our benevolent fund so that if people are struggling financially they can get the help they need but we often have a little bit of prejudice when we think about that especially if we have never been in a position where we had to turn around and ask a church for help and Jesus is reminding us that sometimes you have to look deeper at what's going on if somebody is willing to come and beg, it's too easy to stand in our shoes and in our place and judge what's going on in there and the pandemic has taught us that a lot of people, for the first time in their lives, they have been productive, they have been hardworking, they have had jobs and were self-sufficient up until now. But there are so many people whose entire industries have been shut down and will be for months ahead. I can remember having a conversation recently with someone where they said, you know, you're supposed to have savings. Absolutely you are. And most people say that you should have about three months savings. Well, we've been in a pandemic for 10 so even if somebody did have three or six months, twice that worth of savings, it's quite possible that they have run through that. But we also know that a lot of Americans don't have that level of security financially. And so people who were trying to do their very best and were gainfully employed have discovered financial disaster and struggle the likes of which they could have never fathomed and they've never experienced before. And not only does that affect your mind and it breaks your heart to realize that now you are in some of the same positions that you have seen other people in, but then you have this humbleness as you try to ask for help. And it can be embarrassing and humiliating because that's not how you wanted to be. But life has happened. And the ramifications of the pandemic are not just physical and with sickness and death. They have rocked worlds and changed households. There are people even within our family of faith here in Crozet that have experienced the loss of a job as they stay home to teach children and take care of children with phenomenal physical and developmental needs. There are families that needed childcare and didn't get it, so one of the dual incomes had to stay home and take care of them. There are people that have become full-time caregivers for adults with disabilities or aging and elderly sick adults in their families. And all of that has impacted so that perhaps for the first time and as they hope for the last time, they have had to ask for help. And Jesus recognizes that that is part of life, is that the day may come when you have to ask for help. It's a very humbling moment. I have never been in the position where I had to ask people for money 
or had to ask for food. But I can remember when I became a single parent with a toddler. And I can remember having to learn to ask people for help with childcare or help me with making sure that I could manage a schedule with a child. And it's humbling because you want to be independent. You want to adult. You want to be mature and capable. And then something happens. And suddenly you have to choose how you're going to respond. But I was very fortunate in that I was part of a church where people granted me grace and they didn't take out their presumptions and assumptions about what was going on in my personal life on me or my child. And that kind of loving, gracious response is precisely what Jesus is articulating here. That when you encounter someone, it's too easy to start asking the questions that our culture asks. Perhaps you've had conversations with people that go something like this. Well, you see that guy over there behind the cardboard sign? He should go get a job. Or, you know, maybe that guy over there, he should stop panhandling. And if you give him anything, he's just going to go buy drugs or alcohol or cigarettes. And so you shouldn't give him anything. But the struggle is that Jesus doesn't say, give to anyone who begs from you and make sure that they properly invest in a 401k and don't go off and buy sugar sweets. That's not what Jesus says. And says, Jesus says, you control how you respond. If someone is willing to put themselves in a place and a position of vulnerability and authentically ask you for something, then your response is to be gracious because all of us have received grace from God. All of us have been forgiven for things that were unforgivable. We have been loved even when we were unlovable. And all of us have turned around and we have sinned away that grace. We have continued to do some of the very same things we asked the forgiveness for in the first place. All of us have received blessings and benefits from other human beings. And then we have failed to be perfect. We have all made mistakes. We have drifted into the darkness. We have wandered from the path. We have gone back to the very same sins that were hurting ourselves and others before. But God still gives us grace. God doesn't cut us off and go, I gave you grace one time and you sinned. Instead, God continually gives us grace, hoping that maybe the second time, the third time, the hundredth time, we will finally start to make the shift. And so God continually pours out what we need and what we ask for. You ask for forgiveness, it is yours. You want to be loved by the Almighty God, you are loved. You want to experience what it is to have a family that surrounds you and supports you through your hard times and celebrates with you through the joys, then God has given you the body of Christ. God continues to give those things, even though all of us fall short of God's glory and sin, sometimes willfully and repeatedly. And so it is not our job to go behind and make sure. Now, if I have the ability to give somebody food, I will give them food if they're hungry. Or if I have the ability to really meet their need, then I try to. But sometimes it's like kindness and talking about Jesus. You are giving a gift and entrusting that you are scattering the seed. That very same theme that our gathering liturgy talked about, that we are scattering seeds and some of those will yield thanksgivings overflowing for God. And some of those will simply be people trying to stop their stomachs from growling and make their pain go away for a little while. But if more and more of us who bear Christ in the world continue to pour out those blessings, then all of that is working in the heart, as is God. And then we entrust that work will be done. 
But the hardest part for us as Christians, especially if we are pretty well off and independent, is for us to step out of that position of judging and instead embrace the experience that is being presented before us. That's a hard lesson that I learned firsthand back when I was in seminary. So I was in my late 20s, and one of the things my seminary required was that we did a cross-cultural trip. And when I found out that my senior year, my third year of seminary, that there would be a cross-cultural trip to India, I was in. My undergraduate studies are in non-Christian religion, so getting to go to the seedbed, the foundation, and the flourishing of Hinduism was high on my bucket list. And we prepared. We had readings to do. We had classes that we took. We we packed and unpacked, we got malaria pills, we got all kinds of immunizations and vaccines. And one of the things that they told us as we were preparing was don't take food and give it to the local people. Don't do that. One, you don't want to try to travel 24 hours in an airplane and then give food to people. But two, that's not very helpful, in some cases, legal. And the other thing they said is that one of the things that you'll see is that you'll really want to give something to the children. They said, if you want to take something to give to the children, don't take a bunch of toys, but give them school supplies. Well, okay, that sounds fun. I mean, I, I'm sure if I handed my child a pencil box full of school supplies, he would be ecstatic instead of getting a PlayStation. But here we were in India, and a lot of these children enjoyed going to school. And so my friends and I that were going decided that we wouldn't just take number two Ticonderoga pencils. There's nothing fun and exciting about an orange number two pencil. Instead, we decided that we would buy fun pencils with cool toppers, and we bought little erasers that were in fun shapes and everything. And so we took, of course, some flamboyant pencils and stuff. Why wouldn't we? So we took those and we had pretty quickly encountered children. My group stood out like a sore thumb. We looked like the United Nations traveling around southern India. I mean, there were uh, very few Caucasians like myself. There were a lot of African Americans. There were a lot of Africans. There were uh, a woman who identified herself as a Latina. We had a Hispanic man from Cuba. We had Koreans and Korean Americans. We looked out of place. So when we would walk around, people would notice us and they would come and talk to us. And then one day we had a little bit of time for us to explore. So my two friends that I was traveling with, one is from Korea and the other is Korean American and his spouse. The three of us made quite an unlikely trio traveling around Bangalore on the coast of southern India. We were out and we, as we were walking down the block, a young boy came up to us and he was gorgeous. He was a beautiful child, had a huge smile and sparkling eyes, and he didn't speak English. He was speaking to us in the local dialect. And so we, we kind of fumbled around and we got him one of our cool pencils and we gave it to him and he was very excited and he was trying to show his gratitude to us. And then he quickly dashed away. And so we said, oh, you know, you're welcome. And then we continued walking down the street. Well, by the time we turned the corner at the next block, there was a little boy and about 23 of his friends were now with him. And we immediately kind of stopped and went, oh my goodness, I don't know that we have enough <laughs> to give all these kids these things. But what we had failed to understand when we first saw them was that he didn't go find a horde of children so that they could pilfer things from foreigners. He had actually gone to the local field on the other side of the block where the children were playing cricket. And he had gathered them because one of the older children spoke English. And as they all gathered around us, the older child that spoke English started telling us what the kids' questions were. They weren't asking us for money. They weren't asking us for food or even asking us for more pencils and erasers. They wanted to ask us who we were and where did we come from. One wanted to know if we knew P. Diddy. 
And they had questions. They wanted to have a conversation. They wanted an experience. And that was one of the things that really struck me that night as we were kind of debriefing about what we had experienced is that sometimes we think that we're here to be the savior. We're here to be the one to give to other people because we have been blessed and we have been self-sufficient and we have achieved material wealth and possessions. But those kids didn't want those things from us. Instead, they wanted to know who we were. They wanted to hear our story. They wanted to tell us their story, who they were. And that transformed how I look at it when someone is willing to step out of their comfort zone and come up and ask a question. There have been too many times in my ministry where I have answered a phone and it is somebody who for the first time in their life is having to ask for help. And instead of trying to make judgments based upon the words that they use or their accent or the way they frame their questions or their grammar, what I've learned is that you're giving an opportunity to another person to preserve their dignity. You have the opportunity to talk to them in such a way and receive their request so that they learn that there is a place where they are loved and valued rather than simply a task or a problem to be fixed that they are a human being of sacred worth. And our response to people is practically the essence of the gospel. All of us would like to think that if the nativity were to happen again today, if Christ were to come back as a child, and that's not how the Bible says Jesus is coming back, but if he were to be born today here in the United States and, and his parents came to our home, we would love to think that we would give them the master suite. We would make for them our best food. We would make sure that they were comfortable, that we would show them radical hospitality because the king of kings had now come into our home but we don't respond the same way to those that could possibly be bearing Christ to us. Rarely do we respond because more often than not, it is a cultural bias and a prejudice against people who are in a position of distress. One of the most beautiful things that I have experienced in the pandemic was when I took the opportunity to be radically honest with you and tell you that for the first time in my life, I too was struggling not with finances, not with putting food on the table for my child or finding a job, but with my mental health. And it was a risk. It was being vulnerable. But the outpouring, the response, the support, the care and the love that I have received from the body of Christ has been incredible. And now I know that that's the response that I need to have when someone is being vulnerable with me and telling me that they are hungry, or they are unemployed, and that they're feeling pretty hopeless, and they're just at the point where they have nothing left in their power, no willpower than to sit and beg. Are we not those that have turned to God countless times and begged for God's mercy, begged for God's love, begged that God would help us be something more than how we are today? We are those that find it okay to beg from God, but when someone turns and begs from us, do we show them God? Or do we show them a cultural bias? Do we show them a mindset that is forged from all kinds of experiences, but not necessarily the desire to experience Christ in that moment, in that exchange, in that relationship? I would love to think that if I went back to Bangalore today, I could find that young man. 
the one who wanted to have an experience, who had been given something for free, and yet that wasn't what he wanted. What he really wanted was to be known and to know. I would love to think that I could recognize that smile. Sure, it would be in an older form because that was back in January of 2008. But the chances are that the child that stood before me that day, the child that found his friends, the child that looked for someone that could bridge the language gap, that child is probably like me, has grown up and seen a myriad of experiences and has had the opportunity to become a little bit more snarky and sarcastic, a little jaded. And the chances are that he and I might not recognize each other anymore. I certainly have a lot shorter hair now. But when I think about what Christ is offering us, Christ is offering us an opportunity to have encounters and experiences and relationships that personify what he was professing here. Our Lord and Savior didn't stay in the manger. He grew up to be a 30-something. And his three years of earthly ministry are completely typified by an itinerant poor man. He wandered around. So maybe it would be easier for us if his parents showed up and he was still in utero and then Mary gave birth to him in our house. But what if he showed up at the age of 30 or 31 and he showed up not wearing a white robe and a gorgeous blue or red sash, but he showed up in dingy clothing. He showed up with sandals and feet so caked with mud and dirt that we couldn't even find the ties to untie his sandals. What if he showed up with skin that isn't the color that we've been accustomed to seeing? What if he showed up speaking a language that we don't understand or speak? What if he showed up with cultural practices that seemed bizarre and alien to us? What if he didn't show up by himself but came with his requisite 12 and some additional male and female hangers-on? What if he showed up with this entire contingent of people who were living on the generosity and mercy of people? Would we respond the same way? It's a struggle that every Christian finds. Now, Jesus is probably not going to show up at my door this afternoon or yours. But chances are, before you and I take our last breath, that we are going to see another human being of sacred worth, another beloved child of God. And maybe they're sitting in squalor on a city corner. Maybe they're standing in a median in our beloved city of Charlottesville. Maybe they are somewhere else and they have the gall to come up and ask us for help. Are we going to choose to see the Christ in them? Are we going to choose to respond to them the way we would love to hope that we would respond to Jesus? He lived his life doing what he had to do, preaching and teaching, sharing the mystery and the hope of the gospel, helping to heal those that were broken, both in body and mind and spirit, and sharing the presence of God, Emmanuel. And some people were so touched and moved by that that they said, can we offer you a place to sleep? Can we offer you some food? Can we help you in some way? And his response was, if you want to, yes. Absolutely. Because it wasn't just his mouth. There were many mouths to feed. There were many people that needed kindness and compassion. And so as hard as it is for us to look at another person and go, well, that's not Jesus. Perhaps it's not, but maybe it's James and John, the son of Zebedee. Maybe it's Mary Magdalene. Maybe it is another person whose faith and whose witness and presence 
not only help to perpetuate the ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but help to give us a fuller understanding of what the gospel message really is. And just maybe that person, that human being that we see, our response to them is an opportunity for them to grow and experience God's love and to have an encounter that will remind us who we are and what we do. Because my greatest hope is that even if I never get to see that young man in Bangalore ever again, that the day will come when he and I get to settle down at perhaps the first meal in the kingdom to come, at a table that has a place for every person, a table that has more than enough food for every hungry mouth, and a place where everyone there is loved, forgiven, and adored. And perhaps that's where I'll have the opportunity to meet him. But I also worry that perhaps that will be the first time where I meet the people that I judged on the corner, that I meet the people that I refused to help when they were willing to beg, or that I looked at them and thought, you're just going to buy more alcohol, instead of seeing a child of God who was broken and in great need. And out of my abundance, I was stingy. Maybe at those moments, God will allow me to experience the kind of radical grace and forgiveness that I denied them. So may you and I not live our lives having to fear those encounters in the kingdom to come. May we begin to live our lives by being generous with what we have, reminded that every gift to another person is truly an experience and an encounter. Not only do we get the opportunity to show them the Christ that's been nurtured and growing in our hearts since Christmas, but we get to see the Christ that is in them. Maybe the one that they don't recognize is there yet. Maybe the one that has been so beaten down and overridden by the pain and the suffering that they experience in this world. Maybe that Christ will finally get to stand up and shine once more because of how we respond them. So when we look back at a passage spoken by our Lord and Savior from almost 2,000 years ago, perhaps what we're really hearing is, I want you to stop living as the world lives, and I want you to start loving as I have loved you. I want you to be gracious. I want you to be giving, because you have never asked for anything that I haven't heard you, received you, and responded. And that's the legacy of Christmas, that Christ didn't stay in the manger. He grew into the adult that the world needed him to be. He became the savior that we are still thankful that he is. And now he is sending us into the world to be a vessel of that same goodness and grace. May we take our rightful place in being compassionate, merciful, and kind, because God has always been the same to us. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.